Support for Connecticut Public Radio comes from AstraZeneca, the global biopharmaceutical company behind a variety of innovative cancer medicines with a pipeline of investigational therapies. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Stephen Gore. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about treatment options for GI cancers with Dr. Jeremy Kortmansky. Dr. Kortmansky is an associate professor of clinical medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. And Dr. Gore is a professor of internal medicine and hematology at Yale and director of hematologic malignancies at Smilo Cancer Hospital. So, um, so cancers of the gastrointestinal tract... The, uh, the gastrointestinal system is really nine different uh, cancers that we see, esophageal, stomach, uh, biliary, liver, pancreas, colon, rectal, and then carcinoid tumors or neuroendocrine tumors. That was eight. Ah, missed one. Mm. Uh, <laughs> we'll have to work on that. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, right. And as a as a gastrointestinal oncologist, do you take care of all of those? I do. Wow, I do. Uh, that's that's a lot to know about. It is a lot to know about. There is also a lot of overlap between the diseases. Uh-huh. So, in terms of our uh, treatment decisions, a lot of the therapies that we use are similar. Uh, hopefully, as we learn more about the diseases, we'll we'll see some differences between the different types. Mm-hmm. And. Um... You know, I guess the one that people know most about because they tend to be screened for it is uh, uh, colorectal cancer. Is that right? That is right. And colorectal cancer is the most common GI cancer and the third most common cancer uh, in the United States, uh, representing between colon and rectal cancers close to 180,000 cases a year. Yeah, that's a lot. And... um you know, I know we, we talk a lot about uh, screening uh, for colorectal cancers with, um, you know, stool, uh, blood, occult blood testing, and of course, uh, colonoscopy. Are Theoretically, should all colorectal cancers be detected at a curable stage? I mean, is that is that really the state of the art right now? Well, we know that colon, colonoscopies and colon cancer screening is very effective. Uh, very uh, and leads to an increased number of cures. And I would say that uh, some of us are seeing that the cancers are being diagnosed at an earlier stage and a much more curable stage. And, and mainly because of screening or so people still presenting with symptoms like bleeding or constipation or other things? Uh, I think that patients still present with, uh, with symptoms. Uh, those are patients uh, that uh, sometimes... Uh, did not follow up with their screening as recommended, Mm -hmm. Uh, so they were diagnosed uh, later. Uh, There are some patients that just have uh, symptoms early on. What we are seeing um, and what has been concerning lately is that there is an increasing number of young people that are being diagnosed with uh, colorectal cancers. Uh, We usually consider it a disease of aging, Mm -hmm. with the majority of cases over 50, and the recommendations for screening had been around age 50. Uh, we're now seeing that about one out of 10 colorectal cancers that are diagnosed are in patients less than 50. 
Uh, those tend to be at an earlier or at a later stage when mm. they're diagnosed. And so uh, some of our guideline task forces are recommending screening starting as early as 45 or 40 if you have a family history. Hmm. Is there any, uh, any thoughts as to why there are these cancers showing up in younger people? I guess the same is true in lung cancer and non-smokers, right? Right. I think that from a colorectal standpoint, it's uh, believed that it's either that it's lifestyle, uh, that the, the too much dancing, the American diet is, tends to be uh, one that's higher in fat, lower in exercise, and that may be contributing to a higher risk of colorectal cancer. Huh. Even though it seems that the whole society has gone gluten free and exercise mania and all sorts of other. Atkins this and trendy that, right? There's a lot of that going on. Yeah, I would say sadly not as as much a society as as you think, and uh-huh. and those diets are often hard to sustain. Right. So people go back to the old ways. And I mean, is there a colon cancer prevention lifestyle that people can look to? I mean, is it just a question of more fiber? Less fat, just kind of healthy Mediterranean diet. Like what? What? what I, I think you you hit right on it. I think that a, a healthy diet is what's the right thing to do. Low fat, uh, five to nine servings of fruits and vegetables a day, low in alcohol, high in exercise. Gotcha. Yeah, probably not too many Americans check off all the all those boxes, right? So when you say family history, um, what's the family history people should worry about? So if somebody's Grandmother had colon cancer in her 90s. Is that something to worry about if your father had colon cancer in his 60s? Is it more than one uh, first-degree relative? So I think just having a first-degree relative with colon cancer does increase your risk Mm. uh, for colon cancer. Uh, We know that there are family syndromes as well. Uh, that are linked uh, to certain genes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And to identify those patients, we do look for uh, at least uh, three first-degree relatives. Um, We look for one diagnosed uh, before age 50 uh, and at least one that is a direct offspring of the other. Mm -hmm. So, And those are usually not so subtle, right? I mean, oftentimes the families know that there's family history going on or... Not always. Uh, not always. Sometimes you have to uh, have to tease it out. Family families uh, have become more complicated these days, so you <laughs> sometimes have to tease out that information. And and sometimes it's not all colon cancer. When you have uh, these hereditary syndromes, they could be associated with not just colorectal, but also upper upper GI, esophagus, or stomach, and sometimes uterine cancer. And and so I. When I am meeting with a patient, I will ask those questions as well, not just who has had colon cancer. Has anybody had uterine cancer? Uh, and you usually find some more more people at risk mm. when you ask the, the probing questions. Ah, gotcha. And one thing that I, I think uh, confronts, uh, you know, <clears throat> primary practitioners uh, pretty regularly and patients worry about is uh, – you know, the occasional hemorrhoidal bleeding that, that many middle-aged people will have, a little bit of blood on the toilet paper, is that something that needs to be investigated? I mean, it sounds like a hemorrhoid, had hemorrhoids in the past. It's still blood, you know? Right. I think bl- blood is blood. I, I also think uh, if the patient is 
50 and hasn't had a colonoscopy, it's a good. Then it's a good it's signal. a good segue, right? To to get them there. But if they're 55 and they had one, it was clean when they were 50. I think if it was clean when it was 50 and they don't have any other symptoms of concern, increased constipation, abdominal bloating, weight loss, uh, if it's, I think, clear that there's uh, just blood on the, the tissue paper and they've had one, yeah, they, may be, okay. they may be safe. Yeah. All right. So that's, uh, that's just kind of the practical thing that I think a lot of people worry about because it's a common problem and you don't want to have a colonoscopy every day. I mean... Once in a while, it's, you know, maybe kind of fun, but every day is nobody's picnic, right? <laughs> Everyone's afraid of colonoscopies, right? I mean, right. It's, it's like you, it's the thing you hear most people complaining about it. Right. It's right? really the, the cleanse that's that people complain about. Right. I mean, because nowadays with a short-acting, pretty good anesthesia, you know, people wake up and it's like, what happened? Right. Barely did anything happen or when's it going to happen, right? Yeah, cleaning out is never, never really pleasant. <laughs> yeah, so um, so let's just walk through with colon cancer. Ideally, um, if people are being screened regularly. They they never develop colon cancer. That's the best. But somebody uh, you know has a has a lesion. Ideally, things are still treated either surgically or with an endoscope, right? I think that uh, treating patients endoscopically is is really Pretty rare. Okay. You, you have to have a very early stage shallow tumor, right. uh, barely breaking sort of the that surface of the the tumor line. More like a polyp or a malignant right. polyp, if you will. Right. Barely malignant polyp. Barely malignant. Yeah. Uh, I think for for most other patients, we do aim for a surgical treatment. Uh, it depends uh, whether it started in the the rectum or the the colon. We do treat those two sites differently. Uh, because tumors of the rectum have a higher risk of recurrence locally after just surgery alone. And mm. so there's there's more that we need to do. All patients, when they're diagnosed, should have a, a staging study, which is usually a CAT scan, to look at their abdomen, their liver, their lungs, to make sure that that's all clean, at which time they can uh, proceed uh, to, uh, to surgery for a, a colon cancer. Uh, for patients with rectal cancers, we tend to use uh, more modalities of therapy, and, and there's really a team of medical oncologists, surgeons, radiation oncologists, and the GI doctors who all contribute to the patient's care. Mm -hmm. and, and why is it so different for the rectal cancer? Is it because it's a different kind of cell, or is it just the location and you, it's harder to get a lot of tissue out because it's kind of stuck there attached to the anus? So I think that uh, both of those are correct. So the, the pelvis is a much narrower area, and so it's uh, harder to get all of the, all of the cells out. Uh, but there, there does seem to be some biologic difference uh, mm -hmm. in that when you compare tumors of the rectum to tumors of the colon stage for stage, so stage two in each, the rectal cancers do tend to have a higher risk of recurrence, uh, and so we do treat them more aggressively. And then anal cancer would be something completely different. Anal cancer is a is a different uh, disease. Would that be number nine, or is that still in somebody else's purview? Uh, no, I th I think that would be number nine. <laughs> you could argue small bowel is number ten. Okay, but that, that's treated uh, very similarly to our colon cancer paradigms. Gotcha. Uh, but anal cancer is a is a different disease. Uh, most uh, colorectal cancers are adenocarcinomas or glandular cancers, whereas 
anal cancer is a squamous uh, cancer, so it's more similar uh, to the to the mouth, as you had mentioned before, or the skin, uh, and tends to have different risk factors uh, for development, including uh, smoking uh, infections with HPV, uh, HIV, uh, and other and other similar risk factors. Mm -hmm. And so one would hope then, I guess, um, that as uh, the papilloma vaccine becomes more and more utilized in both uh, men and women, uh, boys and girls, I guess, um, the, at least one source of anal cancer proclivity might, might decrease. Uh, we, we like to think so. Is it the same papillomaviruses that are being? It is. It is. It is. Yeah. Uh, which are the ones associated with right. uh, sexual activity and, and so on. Exactly. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Um, well, I've, we've covered uh, a little bit of the, uh, the lower <laughs> GI tract, and I'm going to want to move a little higher up. But, but first, we're going to need to take a short break for a medical minute. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, a biopharmaceutical business with a deep-rooted heritage in oncology and a commitment to developing cancer medicines for patients. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about survivorship. Completing treatment for cancer is a very exciting milestone, but cancer and its treatment can be a life-changing experience. For cancer survivors, the return to normal activities and relationships can be difficult, and some survivors face long-term side effects resulting from their treatment, including heart problems, osteoporosis, fertility issues, and an increased risk of second cancers. Resources are available to help keep cancer survivors well and focused on healthy living. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Stephen Gore. I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jeremy Kortmanski, to discuss treatment and clinical trials uh, for gastrointestinal cancers. Jeremy, uh, before we get to the, to the esophagus, uh, one thing we, we didn't talk about much uh, or really at all uh, for either the colon or the anus is it's, it's sometimes chemotherapy is actually involved even when the cancer hasn't spread. Is that, is that right still? Uh, right. So for patients with colon cancer, colorectal cancers, chemotherapy is often part of their treatments, especially for patients that have more uh, advanced disease, uh, some sta primarily stage three, uh, which means that the lymph nodes in the area are involved. Mm -hmm. But sometimes patients that have what we view as higher risk stage two, we would also offer uh, chemotherapy. Uh, we are trying to learn uh, with who gets chemotherapy, but also how much and for how long. It used to be everybody got uh, six months. Uh, we're now learning that there are perhaps some patients that can get less than that, hmm. and that helps us avoid some of the long-term toxicities that could be associated with the treatments. And, you know, we hear a lot about, you know, precision medicine and personalized medicine and is there anything going on there where certain patients with colon cancer could have certain mutations that should be treated specifically or anything like that? Yeah, I, I think that our understanding of the, the biology of colon cancer is, is really blossoming. I, th I think at the most basic level, we've learned that it's not just colon anymore. There's left colon and right colon, and those are uh, 
biologically different uh, types of cancers in terms of the genes that might be activated. Hmm. Uh, there's a lot of interest in uh, patients with microsatellite instability. That sounds uh, fancy. <laughs> so microsatellite instability is a, a product of abnormalities in genes that affect how our bodies repair our DNA. Okay. Uh, and so uh, we know that that's associated with some of the hereditary colon cancers that we see. Mm -hmm. uh, but sometimes it happens uh, sporadically. And so uh, these tumors uh, are seem to be uh, exquisitely sensitive to the new immunotherapy drugs that are, are out there. Uh, and several of them are now approved for patients with uh, colon cancer that have this, uh, this microsatellite instability. And it's, it's important because this is a marker that we can easily test for, and mm -hmm. we test for in all patients. And while the, the drugs are still a, approved for patients that have already had chemotherapy, there are now studies going on that are looking at it as, as in place of chemotherapy. Oh, very cool. Even in patients uh, where the, in whom the cancer has not yet recurred? Or not so that's yet. that's also being looked at in clinical trials as well, yeah. uh, and that's a, a national study. Uh, what's difficult is that patients with this microsatellite instability actually only represent a, a small population of patients with the with the disease, and so uh, when we look at um, patients with metastatic disease where it's already spread to other places, it's it's, it's probably less than ten percent. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But 10%, you know, if you're in that 10%, it's good to have options, well, I, right? And they, I think that the, the field of oncology is moving towards uh, more specific treatments for smaller populations of patients, right. right? That it's no longer just where it started that defines the disease. Yeah, right. But as you pointed out, the, uh, while we, we tout a lot of these treatments that are for very specific uh, genetic abnormalities, acquired mutations, and so on, uh, the ones for which we have treatment really often represent a small subset. That's the little dirty secret that nobody talks about, <laughs> at least in many cancers, right? Right. right. You know, uh, dirty little secret, yeah. So esophagus, that's, uh, that's at the kind of the uh, upper end uh, of the body, as, uh, as we might say. And uh, you already mentioned that... Uh, that the tissue in at least part of the esophagus is, is, well, maybe we didn't talk about that. We talked about the mouth, but the esophagus has got different kinds of cells depending on where in the esophagus it is, right? Right. So primarily the cancers that we see in the esophagus are either adenocarcinoma. The uh, gland forming Which kind. are the glandular forms that tend to form lower down in the esophagus, mm -hmm. uh, are associated with uh, diet for the most part, so high-fat diets. There you go again. Uh, and <laughs> there's one thing I want to stress today, uh, and and reflux, uh, and that's actually becoming much uh, more common in the patients that we reflux see. Reflux being acid reflux, acid like coming back into the esophagus. Yeah, we uh, used to call it indigestion. Right? <laughs> uh, it used to be that squamous cell cancers were much more common, uh, which is a cancer that's higher up in the esophagus. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is often associated with smoking and alcohol. Uh, but we, we have been seeing a shift uh, over the last 20 years or so. Is that because fewer people are smoking and drinking a lot? Uh, I think that there's less people smoking and, and uh, more, people eating more, fatty more dietary indiscretion. 
Gotcha. Jeez. You just can't win, right? <laughs> and, um, and in particular, um, as I recall, uh, this adenocarcinoma thing is uh, it can be associated with a with a, a benign precursor that we used to call Barrett's esophagus. I don't know if we still call no, it. No, we that. we still call it Barrett's esophagus. Yeah, uh, I think that uh, patients who have this frequent heartburn uh, are are encouraged to talk with their doctor, talk with a GI doctor uh, to be screened. Uh, for Barrett's esophagus, it's done through endoscopy. Upper endoscopy, not Upper the colonoscopy. Endoscopy. You don't need to clean yourself out for that you one. You don't need to clean yourself out for that. So don't be afraid, guys. <laughs> uh, I think uh, the majority of esophageal cancers that we see um, are still uh, caught with symptoms rather than screening. Gotcha. Uh, with patients presenting either with pain with eating or difficulty swallowing, uh, weight loss. And so anytime that uh, there's difficulty swallowing or you, you feel like there's food getting stuck in your chest, uh, that should definitely be checked out. Mm -hmm. Although it doesn't mean you have cancer. It doesn't mean you have cancer, but it, it Swallowing it should, should be straightforward. Swallowing should be a, a simple task. Yeah, interesting. So, uh, you know, I have to tell you a little anecdote, uh, as is my want, but when I was 50 and I, you know, I was really great about signing up for my colonoscopy for like my 50... 50th birthday plus one day or whatever. And um, and I went to my friendly uh, gastroenterology colleague. I was living in Baltimore at the time, a guy that I re really like and respect. And um, so he was just kind of asking me the usual questions that a GI doctor would ask. And he asked me about reflux symptoms. I said, well, you know, I, I keep a bottle of Maalox at my desk. He says, really? I said, yeah, well, I mean, yeah, so what? Like, you know, once in a while you take a swig, right? He says, well, then we got to do an upper endoscopy. I said, well, come on. I mean, I don't have really routine GERD, but he says, well, look, Steve, you know, uh, no, I don't think it's normal to do that. And uh, you don't want to have Barrett's esophagus and not know about it. So I, I didn't, fortunately. And I, in fact, I, I think I was right that I don't really have unusual symptoms. I just like to be prepared for those <laughs> bad days, right? But yeah, too much information. I understand that. So, um, uh, with, with esophageal cancer, um, uh, esophagus cancer, you know, the esophagus tends to be in kind of a funny place anatomically, right, in terms of causing symptoms or not? It, it is. So it's the connection between our mouths and our, our stomach. Uh, and so uh, the symptoms that people have are this, this difficulty swallowing. But you have to have a pretty big tumor to get to that point, right? Well, that's, the, well, that's, the, that's the problem actually, is that by the time patients do have difficulty swallowing, uh, the tumor can be more advanced. Uh, and so it's a trickier one to diagnose earlier. Mm -hmm. we, we are not yet recommending uh, routine endoscopies in the same way that we recommend colonoscopies. And uh, to be fair, these tumors are much less common uh, than, than colon cancers. And so uh, we don't see as many of them per year as we do colon or even or even pancreas, uh, and so um, so I don't want to overreact either. Uh, but they can be caught at a at a later stage, which makes treatment for them uh, more complicated and really warrants uh, a team approach. Again, through GI doctors, surgeons, medical oncologists, and radiation oncologists, yeah. all working together. And the surgery for for um, esophageal cancer can be pretty complicated, right? It is pretty complicated. Uh, there are some patients uh, that 
we don't recommend surgery because it can be complicated uh, or that we recommend surgery at a later point. Mm -hmm. uh, but for many, having that surgery leads to a change in, in lifestyle. You can't eat the way that you once did. You know, losing weight is, is now uh, a, a much more common problem. Mm -hmm. And so it can be challenging. And, and so it's the, the bariatric surgery you never wanted to have. Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. And then I guess, you know, people who, who also end up having radiation can have problems with that as well. Uh, they they can. I think none of our treatments that we use are are walks in the park. So I have a lot of respect for the patients who who go through these treatments, dealing with the side effects during their treatments, and also those that come afterwards. Is there anything exciting happening in esophagus cancer in terms of immunotherapies or or targeted therapies, or is it? So uh, in the immunotherapy world, I think we are learning that there is a marker. Uh, for patients that uh, would benefit from immunotherapy, uh, a protein called PDL1, okay, which I'm sure you have touched upon on the show once, once before, maybe. Uh, but that is showing to be a, a marker of response to the immunotherapy drugs, a predictor uh, of response, or a predict right, a predictor of response, uh, and one that maybe uh, suggests that using. Uh, one of our new checkpoint inhibitor drugs might be better than a, a chemotherapy drug. Hmm. Uh, again, that only represents a, a small uh, percentage of the population. I think the the results that we have seen are, are still modest, and, and there's a lot of effort uh, to to try to build on that uh, to find newer newer therapies, newer immunotherapy combinations that might be better. How can you be sure uh, when you're having a diagnostic uh, and or therapeutic surgery for any of these cancers, that your tissue is going to be studied for the appropriate things. It sounds like um, the knowledge base is, is changing on a regular basis and what, you know, was standard evaluation of tissue last year may no longer be adequate and you don't want to be in a situation where, gee, I'd love to treat, be able to treat you with you know, this new difungomuctane, but we didn't do the difungomuctane <laughs> test last year, you know. Well, I think that the challenge is is keeping up with these changes in the field uh, and then talking with our colleagues in the pathology department and the laboratory department to make sure that these tests are being done. Uh, we work to, to try to figure out where we can make them just the standard. Everybody gets tested for it. For example, microsatellite instability in upper GI cancers, we do look at another protein called HER2 to see if that's amplified. Everybody gets tested for that. That's the same one that's often uh, mutated uh, in breast cancer, right, or, or amplified in breast cancer. Correct, uh -huh. correct. Uh, and uh, similar therapies uh, seem to have some, some benefit. Uh, so the newer ones that are coming out, it really requires a dialogue between all the, the, the folks that are involved in the care. So would it be fair to say then that um, it's reasonable when a patient is having surgery or plans to have surgery that they could ask their surgeon whether the pathology department with whom she works, you know, does all the state-of-the-art tests that may be appropriate? I think it is fair to ask your, your surgeon or your medical oncologist. Right, but you might not have one of those yet, right? Uh, right. I, I think it... I think that a lot of these new biomarkers uh, that we have um, are, 
are tests that the, the medical oncologists use to try to prepare their treatment. And so they're the ones that are often acting, acting upon the results. Yeah. And so it's an, I think it would be important to ask them as well. And I guess in the, in the short time we have left then, um, one thing I would ask you is in the old days, a lot of these surgeries were done by general surgeons. And matter of fact, colon cancer surgery was probably the bread and butter of uh, general surgery. And is that still the case or should patients really be seeing surgeons with a surgical oncology expertise? I think that to the, the best that they can. I, I think not everybody has access to that degree of subspecialization. I, I think for surgeries of the esophagus or the, or the pancreas, uh, we know that high volume centers uh, have better outcomes. Uh, I think the same is true for, for colorectal surgery. Um, many surgeons have experience uh, with colorectal surgery, uh, but you, know, you want to know that your, your surgeon has, has done a lot of them. Dr. Jeremy Kortmansky is an associate professor of clinical medicine and medical oncology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.